This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Zoe Wickham and I'm here to um, present Zeks Mdar, artist, playwright, poet, novelist, writer extraordinaire, really. And um, Zeks has taken on one of the most um, difficult uh, subjects in South Africa to write about. And um, he'll tell us all about it in a moment. Um, so please, would you welcome Zeks Mdar? Yes, again. Thank you. Thank you. He's going to speak today about, I think, two of his latest books, Black Diamond and The Sculptors of Ma Mapu Kupwe. I hope I get that right. It's quite a hard word to say. We'll have some time for um, questions afterwards, and then you'll also be able to get Zakes to sign um, any books you choose to buy. Zakes, I'd like to take you right back <laughs> to your first work of fiction in 1995, an extraordinary novel called Ways of Dying. Um, it was in many ways an iconoclastic novel in the sense that it addressed a rather, deli a rather delicate subject, which was the, what was known then as black-on-black -black violence. But... Um, the other thing that he did, I think, which is very interesting, at the time, of course, in South Africa, we had a rather restrictive views about writing, and there were all kinds of tenets that the, um, that the uh, liberation struggle had, well, not exactly imposed, but suggested. And some of these were things like how, you know, realism was the preferred mode of expression because that would help people to... We, we should all be writing about the condition of the oppressed and do this in as direct a way as possible. Now, of course, ways of... of, of not Sorry, not ways of reading. Um, of, of dying. Ways of dying yes. was not really a realist novel at all. In fact, it had rather a lot of magical content. I wonder if you'd like to say a little bit about writing that book, it must have been quite a challenge to go against the grain in that way. Well, uh, th thank you very much, uh, Zoe. And thank you all uh, for, for coming. Well, uh, Ways of Dying, in fact, was my first novel. I'd never written a novel before. I'd written many plays before uh, Ways of Dying. I was a playwright, and I never actually thought that I could write a novel before Ways of Dying. I was experimenting with Ways of Dying. Um, I was using a mode of storytelling that I did not know existed at the time. Because, as you rightly uh, point out, the novels that I'd read in South Africa by South African writers were novels of the mode that was realism. 
because the novels that we read, which were mostly, you know, the set works that were, were read at schools and so on, were of that mode, mm -hmm. you know. And so the, the novels that uh, our writers wrote were definitely of, of, of that mode. But the stories that we were told, the stories that we had, our grandmothers, you know, had told us, stories in the oral tradition, were not of that mode. We listened to the stories where the supernatural and what you would call objective reality existed side by side, you know, in the same world and uh, did not seem to be disconcerting. And I thought that I could experiment then using the very same mode that my grandmother used in her storytelling. At the time, of course, I had not read the South American writers and so on who used a similar mode, you know. Um, I did not know that actually there were writers who were writing, you know, in that mode and it actually did have a name. It was called Magical Realism. So I wrote then that story um, uh, in that uh, mode uh, precisely because I was tired of reading, you know. We um, all were. Yeah, you see. Um, so that, that's how then it yes. came about. It was actually informed more by the oral tradition, mm -hmm. you know, of our own storytelling rather than by magical realism, mm -hmm. uh, which I came across later. Uh, in life, and I saw, oh, yeah, in fact, you see, uh, this is a storytelling mode, uh, you know, that um, uh, informs uh, my, my, my world view, and mm -hmm. I then learned further from it. Well, I find it really ironic that you should say that, you know, that the source is, comes from tradition, because, in fact, one of the things you do in that novel, I think, which is absolutely marvelous, is the way in which you undermine tradition and in which you focus on newness and innovation. I mean, that marvelous character, central character of yours, Taloki, he's, a, he's an exotic creature, really. He's really trying to survive against the odds. So he, he uh, invents this title for himself, a professional mourner. And he literally makes up these sounds so that he sits on the mound and kind of makes up these weird sounds that makes everybody weep. And, of course, it's part mm -hmm. of healing. But he's against tradition. He chooses a, an, a very strange costume for himself. He chooses to eat green onions with Swiss roll, yeah. which is wonderful. You know, so... I think that's very interesting, especially in the light of the fact that we were all told that, you know, we must write in solidarity with the movement and that the movement is about a recovering tradition. So it's interesting that it comes from tradition, and yet that is what you undermine. Yeah. The storytelling mode is informed by tradition. Oh. But, of course, 
I was then inventing, you see, mm-hmm. using those modes to invent something new. Yes. Right. Yeah. You do something else that's quite new uh-huh. in there. Well, perhaps it isn't. Perhaps that comes from the storytelling tradition where you, you have a strange formal narrator who is in the plural. It is a we who speaks and speaks of us and our world. Yes, you've got the character Tolokhi and a lot of the uh, events and, and, and ideas that focalize through Tolokhi, but actually there is a we who speaks and who speaks presumably as a community, as a com- communal voice. In fact, that communal voice, yes. uh, Zoe, comes from the, oral. the traditional uh, uh, modes of storytelling. Yes. Bari in a eerie, they mm-hmm. say it once happened yes. because the story does not belong to an individual, sure. it belongs yes, to the to community. Yes. So it is the community that tells it. Yes. Yes. And yet, in the, in the novel, the community itself is held up to scrutiny. The very notion of a, a wholesome community is yes. held up. And of course, you show us that, like any community anywhere in the world, Right. It's, you know, it's full of mm-hmm. uh, fissures and, and um, cracks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we ought to talk really about your new novel. Um, and the first thing I want to say about it is, um, I want to ask you, is that, I mean, even the most, the least intrusive of um, publishers have things to say and are very insistent about titles. And I'm very interested in the title there, the sculptors of Mapungupwe. Now, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It is not alliterative. We are told that you have to have titles like that. And it seems to me that you deliberately choose a title to inscribe its Africanness. Is -hmm. that the case? Did your publisher not complain about an unpronounceable title for the Western ear? Well, not really. Let me tell you what the book is about. Yes, do. Then maybe you'll understand what the title is about. Actually, the two books that... uh, Let me tell you briefly about the two books that Mm -hmm. we are talking about today. The, the, the first one is set in pre-colonial South Africa. And the second one, Black Diamond, is set in post-apartheid South Africa. Yeah. So I'm looking at two different communities mm-hmm. at the two opposite ends yes. of history. The pre-colonial uh, novel is set in an ancient kingdom of Mapungubwe. It's titled The Sculptors of Mapungubwe. It is a reconstruction set in an ancient kingdom that existed in what is northern uh, South Africa today the northern part of South Africa, uh, the present-day Limpopo province, the northern province in South Africa today. There existed 
more than a thousand years ago, a, a kingdom there, which was called Mapungubwe, which had an ancient civilization. It was actually a town which existed and there was gold mining there and so on. I'm reconstructing it here from the work of ethno-archaeologists who have done a lot of work um, um, uh, uh, there, you know, who have done a lot of archaeology uh, with a lot of artifacts, gold, you know, and so on. The people of Mapungubwe used to trade with uh, the people of Arabia, of India, and uh, of China via the Swahili people of what is Tanzania today and then of Somalia. They used to trade in ivory and in gold with those people. And what I'm doing here then, I'm reconstructing those times, but creating a fictional story. Because this is a novel, I'm creating fiction with a setting that is reconstructed then from archaeology, but also using the oral traditions of the people today who still have the folklore that has been passed from generation to generation about those times, but also using the writings uh, of the Arabs, the Arab travelers and the Arab traders who traded with the inhabitants of Mapungubwe at the of that time. Now, ancient Zimbabwe, the kingdom of Zimbabwe, was built by some of the people who came from Mapungubwe when Mapungubwe fell after that, that kingdom was destroyed. Some of the people who left that kingdom went on to build Zimbabwe. Mapungubwe is a, the forerunner of Zimbabwe. They can pronounce Zimbabwe, so they can, pro try with they, they can pronounce Mapungubwe as well. You, you see? With a little practice. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I wouldn't name it anything else because yes, that was the not. name of mm. that kingdom, you right. see. Uh, and it was called that. So it, it would be impossible to, to give it. Yes. Yes. Uh, to, to give it a different name. And the publishers understood that. Black Diamond, on the other hand, is about, you know, is a very contemporary story on the so-called new South Africa. It is set in Johannesburg. Um, well, we, we can Talk about. take it from there. Right, right. Well, what the, the uh, sculptors does is to return to a theme, in fact, um, your Tolaki theme, the notion of art, the role of the artist, the freedom of the artist. What you have is two half-brothers, aren't they? And we look at the ways, and they're both artists, they're both sculptors. I don't, won't give the story away, but there is a struggle between modes of production, a struggle between uh, more innovative work and abstraction, and against that, 
the mimetic, the realist. So you've got that struggle going on, but you also have the struggle of the integrity of the artist, because one of the, the brothers is co-opted, he becomes an official artist. Um, why did you return to the theme of art? What was it that you wanted to do that um, Ways of Dying didn't do? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, somebody once told me that we are always writing the same okay. novel. Maybe it is true because I've observed that. <laughs> when, when I look, you know, I, I've, I've written many novels already. And when I look at all these novels, somewhere, you know, there's something about the plight of the artist. Yes. You know, uh, in the country. Sometimes it may not be the major theme, you know. It may not be the, 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 the primary storyline. It may be the, the, the secondary storyline somewhere, but it, it has to be about the artist. Right. Perhaps it is also because, besides being a writer, I'm an artist myself. I mean, I'm a painter. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, I'm always struggling uh, with that issue, you see, uh, with myself as a creator of art, you see, right. and also as an interpreter of, of mm -hmm. art, you, you see that? Yes. And um, my characters, therefore, are involved in that, uh, in that constant uh, struggle. Now, you've written, um, I mean, this is set in the 13th century, isn't yes. it? Now, you've, you've written about history before. Yes. I think most, uh, um, Heart of Redness. In Heart it? of Redness, Heart yes. of Redness, for mm. instance, where you look at the Nonquasi story. Um, but in this, I mean, why hark back to history? Because is there something you want to say that in a sense, resonates with the contemporary. And what is that? Well, it, it's because, you know, the past is always a strong presence in our present. <laughs> when I write about history, I'm really commenting about our present. It is never, ever the past for its own sake. Yeah. It is always something about our present. Mm -hmm. For instance, when you look at the sculptors of Mahafungubwe, and I am looking at issue, issues of censorship, for instance. Yeah. I am looking at issues of official art, where the ruling class for instance, wants these artists, which was an issue then, you know, to create art that glorifies the state, yes. you see, instead of creating art, you know, uh, for themselves, and the, the rulers feel that this is, uh, they are being self-indulgent, and so on. You, 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 you find that these are issues that we are, we are grappling with even today. They may take other names today, 
they may say, okay, let's talk about nation building, for instance. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about social cohesion, which is what you know, they are saying in South Africa, for instance. We are going to fund art, but uh, what are we going to look at when we are dispersing these funds? Will this art that we are creating, um, will it contribute to social cohesion? Will it contribute to nation building and so mm -hmm. on? Mm -hmm. You see, you find that in that way, uh, official art is already creeping in, you see. Censorship by another name is creeping in already, you see. The artist is being now restricted, you know, through other ways, you see. You know, it's, 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 it's not overt censorship, mm. but, you know, it's... Uh, mm -hmm. it's so you, you find that I'm already commenting about today, even though these mm -hmm. are issues mm -hmm. of the past. Mm -hmm. That is why I'm saying that. You know, the, 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 the past is, is always present yeah. in, in, in our present, yeah. you know. You say not so overt, but in fact we do have cases of overt censorship. Quite recently, I don't know if you remember the case of the Minister of Culture shutting down an exhibition of a young black woman because she felt she was promoting lesbianism, for instance. Um, oh, I forget, but there are a number of instances. Well, like you, you see, no, no, no. The, the, the minister did not shut it down because she doesn't have the power to shut it down. That would have been unconstitutional. What happened? In South Africa. Yes. The minister cannot do that in, in, in South Africa, you see. What, what do you remember? What, what happened, happened was the, the minister was supposed to open this exhibition, as mm -hmm. ministers uh, sometimes do. Supposed to go there and, and, and yeah. make a nice speech, you know, to open <laughs> this exhibition, you see, of a very famous uh, photographer. Zanele Mohudi, a wonderful, wonderful uh, 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 artist. And then uh, she, she goes there, she looks at these uh, works of art uh, of uh, naked uh, uh, you know, uh, black women in ver various poses. And she says, well, she's not going to open, she's not going to be party to this exhibition. She, she's not going to participate in opening this exhibition because uh, this is pornography. That's what she calls it. And then she leaves. Mm -hmm. You see that? She, she can't close it. The exhibition goes on. But, so that, but, that was all. I would have thought it was a good thing to get rid of her in that case. Yes. I don't know why everybody complained. Well, she, 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 well everybody complains because, first of all, she declares that this is pornography. Oh, yes, yes. You, you see that? Yes. And then, of course, the, 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 this is reported in the press that she, mm -hmm. she called, you know, this, this is, you know, she, pornography and mm -hmm. so on. You know, what, 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 what does she know? Of, what, I mean, 
what gives her the right to, to call anything pornography. You, you, you see that? Mm -hmm. And then, of, of, of course, that in itself, you know, uh, becomes in news, you see. And she's interviewed on that, and then she, she, she says, this does not contribute to nation building and social cohesion. It is pornography. And then, of course, she has her supporters, and then she's attacked by others and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, this becomes very controversial and all that, you, uh, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. This is how then, you, you know, um, artists, you know, uh, th th this is another way of you know, the restrictions coming in because other artists, of course, will restrict themselves because they will be afraid that, oh, we, we won't get funding from the government because our work will be declared. Uh, fortunately, Zanele is, is, is famous already and so on. She does not need their blessing or their funding. Her exhibition goes on. And then, you know, it will go on somewhere else again, and all of that. You, 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 mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, you see that. I want to come back now. to the way in which you write about art, artistic practices, and also the role of the artist, because in all that kind of exploration of the aesthetic, you always have an ethical dimension, and also an ascetic dimension. Why do your artists, why are they so uh, self-negating? Why do they have to re refrain from all sorts of things? There's like a, there's a, well, there's a, sexual, uh, there's a sexual prohibition, for instance, going on, where they yeah. only discover right at the end that, you know, Tolocchi, for instance, holds himself against a woman who he clearly loves and who loves him, but, you know, yeah. he believes he shouldn't have sex. And similarly, with your man, um, is his name Chata? Oh. He too doesn't go for the girl. He believes that he has to keep himself pure. So there is a certain, and he's ascetic. Oh. They, they're both ascetic. Have you not noticed this? No. <laughs> now that you say it. They're oh, very man. self negating. I, I mean, I wondered if it had something to do, well, with, with in, I was wondering with Tolok if it had something to do with the AIDS epidemic, for instance. No. That you felt you had to. So why do they, why do they uh, restrain themselves in this way? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> well, in fact, you arrive at that at the end, of course. Eh? That they, they finally decide, well, you know, I give up now and I'll go for it. But... Oh. Yes, but I thought that that kind of asceticism seemed to be part of almost a kind of purity, an, an aesthetic purity as well, that they won't mm. be contaminated by the state and the state's prescriptions and the expectations, that it, in a sense, helps them to remain independent. No? The state does... Contaminate, but I won't, <laughs> I won't think that, I mean, a um, woman contaminates, I mean, you know. No, no, I didn't that, think that yeah, that, that was the case. That, no. that would be stupid. <laughs> Actually, you know, that would be, yeah. So if there is asceticism 
there along th those lines. But, but yeah, Tutulogi does actually see himself as a monk, actually. Yes, he does. He, he, he calls himself Self that. Monk. Yes. You know, he sees himself I in that light. Um, Chata, I don't... Well, he's, he's, his auntie, for instance, urges him. She says, look, you know, you like that girl. Go for it. Mm. He says, no, no, no. He's going to get on with his work. So in a way, um, falling in love is seen by him as interfering with his work. And he has to learn to incorporate love mm. in his work. So in a sense, it's part of his journey yeah. of self-discovery. I mean, you have that... Well, I don't know where, where that comes from, you know. <laughs> in, in, in as far as, I mean, my, my creative uh, mm -hmm. imagination... Because it's not even informed by my own experience. No. Because, for instance, my own creativeness mm -hmm. comes from, 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 from a lot of love mm -hmm. and a lot of loving. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you see, I'm actually inspired and, and by, 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 by being loved and by loving, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I would have imagined that my characters would learn from, from me. You know, characters can be very difficult, very but, resistant. But they resist, you know. Yes. Yeah, and yes. they they take their own direction, in, yes. in as far as that is concerned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's an interesting observation mm -hmm. that you you, you 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 are making. But I can't answer that one. <laughs> but you have, for instance, in that novel, you have. Mm the trope of the mirror and the mirror seems to have quite a number of functions doesn't yes. it it's about narcissism but it's also about self-knowledge and he mm. can give the mirror away to to the to the young boy to the young boy in yeah. the end and that's kind of almost coincides with his ability to move outwards because he's very inward looking isn't yeah. he so he can move out and he can make his approaches to the girl in the end mm. Because in the beginning, actually, the first time we see him, he's admiring he's himself. He's admiring himself, yes, so mirror. it is narcissistic. But oh. it's a marvellous opening line because it starts with, this was the year of the mirror, oh. doesn't it? Yeah. I'm sorry I go on about the art so much, but there's one thing I want to ask you about. Yeah. You have two pathological conditions in that book. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember. That. One is called... Um, well, one is about the wanderlust. Yes, yes, yes. You know, when he's stuck on top of the hill with the toffs and they force him to be the official artist and he won't do it. He has this desire just to go, but it, it's presented as a pathology and he has to try and contain himself. But the other one is called, is it Mbili? M where... He's, which is also a pathology, and that's a wonderful one, because the state calls him that, calls okay. it that. He, when he refuses to do hmm. the kind of sculptures that they want him to do, and he goes on innovating and making abstract shapes and doing his own thing, basically, yes, yes. they say, ah, oh, Imbecile well, is he yeah. is... Is it imbecile? Imbecile, yeah. Imbecile. Hmm. They say, ah, this is an illness. 
And what happens is that the word takes off hmm. and people, everybody starts using it in the end because they too recognize that anything that is in any way transgressive, if you give a name to it, if you call it imbecile, then somehow it works. Do, I wanted to ask you whether those two words actually exist or whether you invented them. Uh, I invented them. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. And uh, my invention actually came from the very minister who declared that those wonderful paintings were pornography. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Yes, sir. That you see something, then it's all. You give it a name. In other words, it's like straw man. You know? Mm -hmm. Okay. Record it. Yeah. You, 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 you give it a name, and then, of course, you mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. it becomes that, then it must be attacked on the basis of the yeah. name that you, yeah. you have given. So everybody else, they need not even see it or look at it. Yes. You know, it, it is well, bad. It's, it's normalized in a way yes. so, that, so that you don't seem as transgressive as you really are. You kind of cover it up. Yeah. I suppose we ought to talk about the other book, but uh, that doesn't mean we, c- we can't come back to this one. Do yes. you want to say or, or a little... We, we, we can... Or when we, when we open it to we, the we, audience... We, we can let the, the people... Uh, we'll, we'll allow them to speak, yes. To speak. Yes. Um, ask, ask us questions. Yes. Ask you questions, because you are the one who's... Who's read the book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who has smart things to say about it? <laughs> I don't. Why don't you say? I don't know most of the times, I tell you. <laughs> you have the answers. Well, they're not answers, of course. They're just one person's view. But do you want to introduce that book to the audience? Just say a little bit about this, like, uh, the um, Black Diamond. Black Diamond? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe... It's different, uh, isn't it? Yeah. I can just read the blood. Of course we forgot to read. <laughs> no, no. We, we, yes. We don't have to. Yes, of course. Oh, heavens. Hmm? You must read. Yes. Read something. Which do you want to read from? Would you prefer to read from the other book? From, from, from which one? From the uh, sculptures. Have you read this one, though? Yes, I have read it. Mm-hmm. I have read it. Really? Yes. <laughs> Are you surprised? Mm-hmm. No, I mean... How much time do we have? We've got plenty of time. Really? Yeah. You can read for five minutes or longer, if you like. <coughs> okay. I'll read from... I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit from this one and a little bit from okay. this. Maybe two pages, two pages. Okay. I normally don't know, I mean, what to read when I'm asked to read, so I, I, I just read from the beginning, you know. <clears throat> 1223 CE. Except in Mapungubwe, They didn't count years that way. Those who lived on the lowlands, be it in the town below the hill, 
on, on, the out, on the outlying farms and the villages or at the mining compounds, counted them in carnivals of harvest and cycles of drought. The patricians on top of the hill counted them in generations of kings, of famous rain doctors, and of important families about whose lineages bards sang. Beginning from the timeless past, when Mwali whimsically molded the first human being with a black clay found only among the reeds of the land of the black sun and commanded her to life, using lightning as his hands and thunder as his voice. But for the traders from Arabia who came through Sofala and for the Swahili of Kilwa, it was 620, counting from the year their great prophet Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina. It was the year of the mirror. Not that there was a sudden proliferation of them in the town. There were only two known mirrors in Mapungobwe. The most ce celebrated one, a work of patient craftsmanship with an ornate wooden frame and blown glass coated with gold leaf at the back. It transformed all who stood in front of it into golden figures. It was brought into the town by Abdullah Salim, the Swahili trader. He gave it to the royal sculptor, Rendani, son of Zwanga, in exchange of one of his three tame lepers and an elephant load of ivory. It hung in one of the king's chambers where members of the royal house uh, could admire their own silly greens in gold. The second mirror belonged to Chatambuza, whose claim to fame was his bachelorhood, his flair for spinning a yarn, and a flaw that shone as if rock rabbits had peed on it. Men often joked about his finicky tidiness, and women wondered at the secret of the shimmering flaw. There was no secret, really. It was made of the mixture of fine dolerite gravel and black clay, like a lot of the floors of the town. After plastering the floor, he rolled a smooth granite rock that was normally used for grinding millet until the floor was compact and hard. And then he used marble pebbles from the Lipopo River to polish it until it was smooth and shiny. The secret, therefore, it, if you want to call it a secret, lay in his patience and in his strength, for he pressed very hard and rubbed for a long time. He did this every new moon to keep the shima fresh, and he did it with his own hands, 
even though it was regarded as a woman's work. Chata's mirror, everyone called Chatambuza Chata, was also brought by the Swahili trader. It was part of a consignment that he was transporting to Mapungubwe, but due to poor packaging, broke into smithereens when his caravan of mounted oxen got bogged down in the rocky gullies of the land of the Makonde. Rendanese was saved by the solid frame and thick glass. Abdul was Salim could only retrieve one piece about the size of two hands. He disposed of the rest of the shards into the Sabi River. That was the mirror that Chata bought for a gold ingot. It was different from Rendani's mirror. For one thing, it was not framed since it was a broken piece of a larger mirror. Also, the glass was not coated with gold leaf but with molten silver. So it did not render golden images but likenesses that looked more like real life. The Swahili trader had promised to bring more mirrors on his next trip, which caused quite an excitement in the town. The maidens would no longer go to the pond to look at themselves. Many full moons later, when the trader returned with a consignment of glass beads from India, people were disappointed that he had not brought the promised mirrors. He had decided that they were too risky a business after all, because on the long and rough journey, they were likely to break again. He had been a great, it had been a great loss when the first consignment had broken, despite the fact that it had mitigated it with the leopard, gold ingot, and elephant tusks. He could have got much more if he had been able to supply each of the grandees on top of the hill with a golden mirror of, of his own and cheaper handheld ones to commoners like Chata, who could afford the luxury. The, the townsfolk hoped that if Wasalim could not fulfill his promise, then other Swahili traders who frequented the region would be wise enough to see the profitability of mirrors and would meet the demand. Despite the disappointment, Mapungubwe continued to talk of the year as the year of the mirror. For Chata, it really was the year of the mirror. People observed that he had become much enamored of his own image. Often he could be seen sitting on the veranda of his house, admiring what he saw in his mirror. The wicked ones giggled and asked one another what was there to admire. <laughs> he was a stump 
He was a stumpy but muscular man with a broad face and dark brown skin that looked quite thick, as if you would have to cut very deep to make it bleed. But he was not ugly. A man could not be ugly, especially if he was hoarding as much gold as Chata was reputed to be hoarding. <laughs> on one such occasion, he sat on a stool under the shade of his thatched veranda, shaving off his beard while smiling at the mirror. The white foam The white foam of the mixture of wood ash boiled in lard, which he also used for bathing himself, made him look like an elder as he scraped the hair off his chin with an old iron knife. Occasionally he rinsed it in the water in a clay basin next to his stool. He looked up when he heard voices of children chanting and laughing. A gang of little girls was singing and mocking an older boy. The boy was all grey from head to toe as if he had been rolled on a, on a maiden. His tanned hide loin was all tattered and dirty. He was wide-eyed with fear and was trying to get away from his tormentors. Chata has seen a lot of him before. Boys his age were already looking after cattle in the meadows or were apprenticed as smithies and, and uh, was apprenticed to smithies and miners. But he was considered too slow for any trade and so he spent the whole day wandering in the town. Chennai, Chennai, with twisted eyes. Chennai, Chennai, walks like a crab. The little girls chanted as they followed him, dancing and clapping their hands. Chata thought the chants were rather silly. Yes, the boy was bow-legged, but he did not walk like a crab. He was cross-eyed, though. He should have been smart enough to take a different route when he saw the little girls playing house on the roadside because he knew that they always teased him. They were bound to find something funny in him, including his name, which was a girl's name. Chata's eyes followed the, the kids for a while and then he resumed shaving his face with much deliberation and aplomb. You want me to stop here? I think we should open up for questions. Oh, I see. Yeah, we've well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop minutes. here. We've got 10 minutes left. Yeah, OK. So anybody have any questions? Oh, Isabel. So you've spoken a little bit about 
place in the sculptors of Mapungubwe, which is obviously that real place. But place is really important, I think, in all your other books. Do you want to perhaps talk about the places in in the other books and what what they mean, or do you do, do you start with the place, and does the story come from that, or do you have a story that you want to put in a place? Yes, 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 yes. The place, definitely. Actually, I think the place is the most important thing uh, in my process. Let me put it that way, in, in my process. It's only with my very first novel, uh, my very first novel was not informed by a place. My very first novel, I think, uh, which is Ways of Dying, was informed, I think, uh, what informed my first novel? In other words, by informed, I mean what brought about the basic idea. For instance, uh, the heart of redness. I was driving in the in the in the Eastern Cape on a mission to to write something for the SABC. I was commissioned by the SABC. Uh, to write, you know, uh, some drama for television. And I saw the Eastern Cape. I'd never been there. I've never, I, I'd never been there before. Then I saw the hills and the villages and so on. Then I said to myself, this place is so beautiful that it deserves a novel. I, I, I didn't know what the novel was going to be about. But I thought, I've got to write a novel set here. And it's got to be, you know. In other words, the place told me that the, the story must be set here and it, it, it must be about this place. And it has happened like that in all my novels. The whale caller, it was Hermanus, and it had to be, a, 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 you know, a, a story that said, that, 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 you know. In Sion, for instance, which is set in, 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 uh, in, in southeast Ohio, it was the place, and the place told me that there's got to be a story that is set in this place. This place is so beautiful or is so ugly that it deserves a novel. Mm -hmm. So lately, what I've observed is that I've been writing novels that are set in a different part of South Africa. Uh, I am mapping South Africa. You see, I, I, I wrote a novel set in the Eastern Cape and then another one in the Western Cape, another one in the Free State, that, that was the Madonna of, of Excelsior, then the, this one which is in, in, in the Gauteng province, and then the, the, the sculptors in, 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 in the Lepompo uh, 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 province. I'm actually mapping South Africa with, with my novels, you know, the, the different parts 
of, of, of South Africa. I, I think that's, that's my mission now. Uh, the novel I'm writing now, Little Sons, has gone back, is going back to the Eastern Cape. Um, yeah, so the, 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 the place, uh, actually, you know, you, you are quite right. Uh, that, that, that's what, um, yeah, it, it's not just the place, it, it's not just, you know, a setting uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, it, 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 where the story happens to, to be, you know. But sometimes it is the character because it, it shapes the story for me. And the, we found that the story cannot happen anywhere else but there. It couldn't have been anywhere else but at that place. I think you need to wait for the microphone. Forgive me, I don't know anything about your biography, yes. but I would be very interested in your journey from South Africa to Ohio. How was it that you made that move, and has that allowed you to be the writer you are today, because you have that detachment physically from the um, subjects of many of your novels? Well, um, I initially made that move by chance, really. It was not anything that I planned. That, that was 34 years ago. Because I was a, I was a refugee uh, from South Africa in Lesotho during the days of apartheid. So when I was a refugee in Lesotho, uh, and then I went to school then, uh, I was in Lesotho then, uh, and then I wanted to go to graduate school to do a master's degree, and I was working at the American Cultural Center uh, as a cultural affairs specialist there. Uh, I happened to come across a theater journal where they advertised a Master of Fine Arts in Playwriting, Ohio University. I thought, oh! So you can actually do a, a, a master's degree in playwriting. <laughs> I, I didn't know you could do that, you know. I was a playwright already with plays. I, I actually had a play here at the Edinburgh Festival that year. And here you can do an MA in playwriting. I might as well go there, you know, and, 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 and do this MA in playwriting and, 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 and get a, a, a degree, a certificate in what I'm already doing, <laughs> you know. Because with us, you know, uh, things like playwriting and so on, it, it was not something you, you, you could do a whole degree just playwriting those days. So I applied then uh, and went to Ohio University <laughs> to do that MFA in playwriting. So whilst I was there, I discovered that, okay, you can do the MA in playwriting and then do an MA in other things as well. So I did MFA in playwriting and did an MA in, uh, mass, in telecommunications, radio and television, 
and then stayed there, then uh, worked at the same university. And then when I finished being a, a refugee, went back to Cape Town and did a PhD there in, uh, in theatre, drama. And then since I'd been in Ohio, I got a job there. They wanted me back to go and teach creative writing. So I went back there. So that's how I ended up there. I think we have time for one more question. That was the journey of my going there. That's why I'm there. Now you wanted to know about the detachment. There's no detachment because I, I, I'm still in South Africa still. I mean, I, I, I go there. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a long distance commuter. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in South Africa. I, I, I commute between Ohio and South Africa. Um, for instance, last year I, I spent six months at Stellenbosch University, and then in Ohio, you know, and so on. I have a, li I have a life in both countries. Okay. We have time for one more question. Could you, Go to, could you just hang on for the... Could you take that, please? Could you please explain your switch from playwright to novelist? Is it also by chance or don't yes. have any special reasons <laughs> you prefer to write novels now? It was also by chance. Because, you see, as you say, I started as a playwright. And I was writing plays all these years, for many, many years. I never thought I could write a novel. I was a dialogue person. You know, I, th I thought I could only write dialogue, well, a little bit of stage directions here and there, dialogue, stage directions, and that, that's all I could do. And now, it happened one day when I was, I was teaching at Yale uh, University in New Haven, Connecticut. It was in the 90s, 91, I think, during the period of transition in South Africa. When I thought that, you see, with plays, of course, when we were writing plays, plays were very immediate. You write a play, it is rehearsed, it is performed. It speaks immediately to the audience. And plays then were very immediate and we're using them in the struggle to communicate immediately the issues of the struggle. During the period of transition, what happened then was, when one day, I decided that, you know, it is high time that I learned how to use a computer. This was in 1991. 
You see, when I wrote all these plays, I was writing them longhand. I would write the play and then type it later or give it to somebody to type it for me. I thought, now maybe I should buy a computer and then learn to compose on the computer and, and type the thing myself. Then I bought a computer from a student. She brought it. And then one day on Christmas Day when my wife had gone to church, I was at home with my four-month-old baby. And then I sat at this computer with my baby on my lap. And then I was playing around, practicing it, using a program called Word Perfect. As I was playing around with a computer trying to see how it functioned, I wrote the words, there are many ways of dying. <laughs> now, I fell in love with that sentence. Then I wrote the next sentence and the next. And then I remembered a character I'd created a year before. When I was in Durham, here next door to you. I was a writer in residence at the Durham Cathedral. A professional mourner called Doloki that I was going to use in a play because I was a playwright. I created this character that I was going to use in a play. Then I said, oh, there are many ways of dying. Let me take this character then and, and put in this thing that I'm writing here, whatever it's going to be. Now, by the time my wife came back from church, I'd written the first page of prose. Remember, I thought I could never write prose and be descriptive and so on. I'd written the first page of prose, the first page of what became my first novel, Ways of Dying. Mm -hmm. Thanks to that computer, he said. <laughs> Jake's so, uh. <laughs> we're running over time now, so thank you, thank you so much. That was a really interesting uh, so story. So that, that's how I, I wrote my first novel, by chance. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, we, Jake's will sign books in the very next um, tent. You will, won't you? Is that so? Yeah. Where, where, where is that tent? Just next door. We'll go there now. Oh, okay. I'll take you there. Thank you. In the rain, yes. Thank you very much. Oh, my word. Listen to that rain. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.